0: Hello, and welcome to the interview series for the Nonfiction Authors Association. Today's session is with Lisa Selge to talk about memory, perspective, and fact in memoir and autofiction. Who owns the truth? I'm Carla King, your host, and I'm happy to have you with us today. This event will last up to 30 minutes, and our podcast recordings, show notes, and transcripts are available on our website. If you're new to us, our members receive an author advisor email every week. This special email features exclusive member content, including curated media leads where you can promote your books. Members also participate in a mastermind group we call the Author Brainstorm Exchange and get access to our private community on Facebook for insider tips and discussions. Discounts are available for our year-round nonfiction book awards program and our nonfiction writers conference. And please check out our many courses, including master courses on book publishing, book marketing, and book promotion. All these courses offer optional professional certification as well. And we can't forget discounts with our awesome partners, including Lulu, Findaway Voices, Office Depot, Spark, and others. And we'd love for you to join us at nonfictionauthorsassociation.com. And now I'd love to introduce our guest, Lisa Selgi, is a writer and technical editor from Southern California. Her work has been published in Atticus Review, Brevity Blog, Third Street Street Beach Reads, and Literally Literary, among others. Her book, which is based on her life as a ballerina, is titled "Narrow Girls on a Blue Profound Stage. And it was the creative thesis for her M.A. in creative writing nonfiction. Today, Lisa calls Washington her home where she lives with her family and long-enduring cat scrap. And she's at work on her second book, which picks up where Narrow Narrow Girls ends. You can find Lisa online, and I'm going to spell this for you. It's L-L-S-E-L-L-G-E dot com. Uh, it's lisa com. <laughs> Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Carla.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm thrilled. And, um, you know, it's uh, we have so many memoir writers in the Nonfiction Authors Association, and people are writing legacy memoirs all the time. And wow, um, it's quite a job when you're wrestling with your own life story. Um, your Goodreads book bio states that you really began writing your book in the pages of your journals in the 1980s, right? Yes. So somehow you pulled your journal together as a memoir, but it got turned into a novel fiction, which you call auto fiction. Did you make that decision because it was hard? Or did your publisher make that decision? How did that come
1: about? Well, so actually it was a little bit of both. Um, I was an obsessive journal keeper as a teenager and went as far as to record actual conversations. I think in that time, I just couldn't believe what was happening to me. I was so fascinated with my life that when things happened, I'd go home and I'd write it down. So I feel, feel very confident that my experiences and my conversations are absolutely nonfiction. Um, but when it came to uh, protecting privacy, And when it came to wanting my book to flow quickly and smoothly the way a story does, I had to make some adjustments. And in speaking with the publisher, when they first picked it up, it was a memoir. I marketed it as a memoir. And in conversations about my concerns with the privacy of the people involved, and also with some of the rules I was breaking in the purest school of memoir writing, I decided that the safest thing to do was to call it, well, to call it fiction, but also just to leave the word memoir off the book. And that's what I told the publisher. Let's just not label it anything. And uh so they had a couple of helpful ways that they um adapted uh the way the book was presented, basically in the uh in the disclaimer, I would say mostly, but it was kind of a joint decision. Great. And so yeah. Uh, we'll talk about
0: how to deal with um, uh, real people a little bit later, but you just said the purest definition of yes. memoir. And I do see, we all see these disclaimers in the front, the times may change to make it a better story, you know, to create a narrative arc or yes. uh, the names of people and situations were changed. Um, where is that line?
1: You know, I, I believe that the line is ever shifting and it kind of depends on what the highest profile people are saying and who we are all throwing our, um, vote behind. But I think when you have, uh, some of those high profile things, I would be remiss if I didn't call out James in a million little pieces, that poor guy was so lambasted, but yeah, I mean, he called a completely non-memoir a memoir. And so, uh nonfiction writers, memoirists, um, it gave us a bad name. And so I think the tendency was to say, we have to be 100% true and factual in everything we say. We have to write up front, uh, make an agreement with the reader. We have to say, this is 100% uh, nonfiction as far as I remember it. But we also have to acknowledge the fallibility of memory. And I think memoirists can do that on a fairly casual basis. And they can say, this is as I remember it to the best of my ability, But you can also say up front, some time has been compressed, and that might be okay in some schools. You can say names of locations, names of people have been changed, and that might be okay. But I think that the newest responses are more along the lines of, use real names, use real places, say, research every fact that you are writing down. And um, I think just last month, uh, Roy Peter Clark, who wrote Kill Your Darlings, wrote an article about uh, how he wants memoir to be presented, and uh, not long after, Dinty Moore got on Brevity blog, I think everybody knows that blog as well if you're a nonfictionista. Um, and he said, what do you all think about this? And of course, everybody poured in to say what they thought about that. And because most people 100% agree with him, and most of the people that I have worked with in my MFA program up at the University of Alaska also agreed, um, I, I I, took, in some ways, I think it was maybe the, the scaredy cat way out to go to leave memoir out, because I really don't feel that... Um, Anything I said was not a, an actual legitimate memoir. But at the same time, I broke a couple rules of these new rules. And so I decided to duck it.
0: And oh, gosh. Okay. You said these new rules. So tell us about those new rules. What are those? Well, I
1: think the rules that, that say you can't even change a person's name and call it nonfiction. And I most definitely changed everyone's name. Um, I, the other rule that I broke was that I condensed places because the, I I chose story. I chose story over fact because I, when I was living this, I felt like it was in a movie and I wanted readers to feel that movie. And so if I needed a conversation that happened in garden Grove, but nothing else happened in garden Grove, but that conversation, everything else happened in Westwood, then I took that conversation off the Gem Theater in Garden Grove, and I moved it to the Westwood Theater because I needed the conversation, not the trip. Nothing else had happened there. And so at that point, when I made that decision, I was no longer writing factual memoir. Your
0: book, you know, you were a young ballerina. Your book is... uh, uh a little risque, maybe yes. it's been said as a young adult, uh, there was an unlikely lover, you were a ballet dancer. I mean, it's just, it does sound like a movie. How, were you protecting yourself and other people from maybe, I don't know, this, this risque
1: situations that, Not myself. that
0: was your life?
1: Yeah. I was protecting others. I own everything that I did in that book, um, and I think that when memoirists decide uh, who to protect, you really have to look at why you're writing the memoir. If you're writing the memoir because you're pointing fingers, because you're accusing, because you're saying, "Look at what all these people did to me. I'm the victim." That's not really, um, in my opinion, a good reason to write a memoir. Memoirs about the change and the awakening of that specific era in your book, and. I, the the names that I changed, the protection that I put in there was definitely for everyone else. I name myself as the decider, the aggressor. The other people in my book are like little paddles in a pinball machine, pinball machine, and I'm the pinball. So I'm just bouncing off them. They happen to be there. They didn't ask to be in the story, but I'm not going to expose them, point fingers or anything. I don't. I don't regret a moment of what happened in my memoir. I hope they don't either, but maybe they do.
0: Well, you know, teenagers can make all kinds of mistakes. That's what we're all about as teenagers, Mm -hmm. right? Experimenting with life. And you were put in a situation or you were in a situation where you you had more exciting things that happened to you that uh, did more exciting things than the average teenager. It's interesting because a couple of weeks ago, I talked with Sherry Kephart, who said exactly what you were saying, almost exactly like, uh, writing beyond the blame and the victimization and all that she actually burned her first draft because it was full of that uh-huh. and then uh her second draft uh was uh her 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 memoir and she did write it as a memoir so that was that's an interesting parallel between you two
1: yeah i think i think we all we all have to check ourselves i, I always think about um Kelsey kirkland's dancing on my grave that she wrote in the 80s And it was all about, you know, who did what to her. And she really didn't take responsibility for any of the things that happened to her. And it was a sensationalist book and it was on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was really fun to read. It was very debaucherous, but it wasn't a a memoir of how she changed or grew. It was a memoir of, of how um, ugly the ballet world can be. But uh, you know she didn't change any names or any places, and whoever got caught in that novel was was quaking you know it it wasn't it wasn't nice oh <laughs> boy affect anyone's privacy, yeah,
0: okay, so your coming of age memoir it involves drugs and sexual exploration, and um these are themes that we see in young adults a lot so yeah. um how its is your is your book and And we'll talk about autofiction, novel, and memoir in a minute and define those. But what genre is your book? I think it's just interesting that memoirists have so much to choose from when they're pointing their book into a a category. Uh, How did you choose and did you choose or did your publisher help you through that? What happened there?
1: Well, I did not choose. But I guess if you look at the age of the narrator, it's definitely young adult, new adult. And yet, I don't know that I would rush to put it on that shelf. I think of my book as literary. Uh, it's got a very literary voice. I love that about it. Um, I feel that it kind of goes along with, um, and not to align myself with Marguerite de Ross, obviously, but she was a big inspiration for me in the area of voice. Her narrator is also 15. And you do not see her book, The Lover, on a new adult, young adult shelf, you see it on literary fiction. And, and she did the same auto fiction thing. She didn't call it memoir, but it's very obviously a memoir. Um, Things have been written about its memoir aspects. Um, And that again, is that situation where you have a young 15 year old hooking up with a 25 year old, and it's a beautiful book. But do you want to condone that to other 15 year olds? Maybe not. I think I think of, of my book as if I have to put an age group with it, which I'd rather not, then I would say it is new adult. Um, kids are exposed to everything with the internet. My book's not going to teach them anything. They don't know, but what I know there it? will be pushback.
0: Okay. First of all, you gave me chills because um, Marguerite Duras' the lover is one of my favorite books ever. Yay, um, she doesn't have scene transitions, which is really amazing. It's kind of abrupt, but it works in a way that, <laughs> Uh, most books wouldn't, and it's a very short book as well. And as for being role models, I mean, <laughs> is it, I mean, you look at the movies and the things people see on the internet. Is that really a worry today?
1: It's hard to tell, but I have to tell you, I was a member of um, a, a writers group on Facebook, and I had a, a dozen people read my arc, my ARC, advanced reader copy. And one of the people was a a mom of teenagers, and she said, I hope you're not marketing this to young adults. And she says, who exactly is your audience? And she wasn't pleased because she assumed that since I had this 15-year-old narrator, that is who I was writing to. And and so I told her the same thing. This is a a literary novel. Um, I hope that people who appreciate words Appreciate this novel, no matter how old they are, because I do feel that people mature at different ages. I think I have certainly met people in their 40s and 50s who are extremely immature, and I've met extremely wise 15-year-olds. I felt um, capable at 15 of making my own decisions, and uh, I'm not the kind of person who now looks back and say, "says Wow, I was a complete moron back then." No, I don't. I feel that. I'm the same person I was, and I felt that the decisions I made were fine. I'm sure there are plenty of people that don't feel that way. And so I don't want to come across as a proponent of this is a great decision for anyone who reads this book. Everybody matures at a different pace.
0: And yet we we have to seem to categorize our books now with the, um, you know, we're, our, our readers are searching Google and Amazon, and they're looking for young adult or new adult or women's or memoir or autobiography or history or something like yeah. that. As a reader, I love young adult. I mean, who doesn't like the Hunger Games or the the Insurgents or Divergent series and you know all those sort of action series? Um, so I. I and I'm working with a couple of authors right now who are wondering whether their books, because it is a coming of age book should be a young adult book. And they are very much being pushed toward that. Do you have any insights on that?
1: I did hear from another uh, young adult author and she felt my book was very appropriate for that audience. And, um, she said, you know, you you don't read a lot of young adult right now if you don't realize that these things come up all the time. LGBTQ issues, drug issues, sex issues, maturity, um, Me Too movement. Um, and by the way, this is Anne Howley. She wrote The Memory of Cotton, which just came out. And um, I I actually uh, created her book trailer for her. So um, we were talking about our books. And I, I love video editing, so um Anyway, that just was something that fell in my lap because we have the same publisher. And she was the one who said, you know, as a young adult author that she thought it was quite appropriate for young adults. So because I've heard both sides, I lean towards new adult. But if I had my way, it would be on the shelf with Marguerite Duras. I want to be be known for my literary technique, Mm -hmm. for my voice, Mm -hmm. rather than my subject matter, I suppose.
0: I've heard... People say you can't tell truth. You can't tell the truth unless you write fiction, right? You can't really tell the truth. Have you heard that? I it's I haven't, but it, it makes, no makes sense. That.
1: It makes sense because we are so hesitant to put ourselves on the page. It's a hard thing to do um, to really admit. And I think that when when you first read a mem- or write a memoir about a transitionary period in your life, your first draft might not look anything like your third draft because in the act of writing memoir, you figure things out. You learn things that you didn't know about that time about yourself and about how you reacted to it. And so you might be just telling your story And then you might go, wow, I didn't realize that I was actually feeling ABC, or this person's perspective of me might have been completely different than my 15-year-old journals. Maybe they're all looking at me and going, wow, she was a troublemaker. If they were going to write their own version of this memoir, how would they see me now? That would be interesting. But um, as long as you're coming from your own experience, your own perspective, and how you felt, I was putting myself into my 15-year-old mind and writing from the perspective of those journals during the body of the work. In the beginning and in the end, I'm an older woman looking back, who I am now. So, Which is also a Marguerite Duras device. But um, I think uh, as far as truth, everything I wrote didn't feel like anything I needed to edit personally. I am not ashamed or shy of anything I went through. I think it's common to a lot of people. And telling that truth is an invitation for anyone reading it to acknowledge their own similar experiences and not feel like they were the only weirdo that went through that. You know, I know (laughs) I was obsessive. I know that I was different. I know I didn't really fit in I know that I was raised really differently than my uh, counterparts there at the studio. I was raised by European parents rather than American. Uh, that means on one set in one sense, we were allowed to mature much faster. We were treated like adults at a much earlier age. On the other hand, we were very um, kind of controlled. I would say, you know, I have a, a German father and an English mother and um. They were um, extremely protective to the point of, you know, wanting to know everything at all times. But once it came to ballet, it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so that was my freedom. That was where I got to shrug off all of that uh, control. But at the same time, if, if you put me next to, you know, half my friends, I was much freer. I didn't have a curfew. Nobody asked for my grades. I could date whoever I wanted up to a point. Um, so it was, it was very different, but I know that there are plenty of people out there who felt like the outsider, who made decisions that their friends didn't make, who will see themselves reflected in my experience. And I think that's one of the values of memoir. It is, um, because
0: when we read others' truths, it makes us feel like we are not so alone exactly. um and if you own your truth like who owns the truth right i <laughs> I, I know that you know police officers go to a a, a accident scene and there's 10 witnesses and they all have different stories about how it happened. Right. right? So I just want to mention that I think Joan Didion, I hope I'm not getting this wrong said she doesn't actually really know what she thinks until she starts writing it down. And that is another French concept. And I love that we're talking about my favorite topic today is like French literature is the essay, which means to try in French, which is just trying out ideas until you actually get to the point and to your decision about how you think about something. Yeah.
1: What was my original question now? Do you remember? (laughs) you were talking about who owns the truth. And, you know, it's funny that you brought up Joan Didion, because uh, in my critical thesis, uh, I talk about her too. And she said, the more important thing is what it meant to me. not not to be absolutely factual. It's more important what I felt about that. So I think everyone owns their own truth. I think everybody has the right to tell their story through their own filter. And I think writers, like any other artist, take their experiences and pass it through the filter of their own mind. And so a painter, three painters are going to look at the same scene and you're going to have you know, impressionism, and you're going to have surrealism, and you're going to have whatever that artist wants to show you about what they see. And for my book coming from an obsessive 15-year-old ballerina, free for the first time, it's going to have my spin on it. Um, so I feel that I do own that truth. And I, I think Anne Lamott in Bird by Bird says exactly, you own your truth. And I, I always think about um, Tobias, Tobias Wolf's mom, She said, if I knew my son was going to be a writer, I might have lived my life a little differently. (laughs) Um, And and Mary Carr, she said said the same thing, you know, I'm going to go ahead and tell the truth. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about talking to other people later, but you do own your truth and other people can, if they wanted to write a rebuttal memoir, they could, Um, they would own their truth. And maybe I'd be going, oh my God, that didn't happen. But whose memory is exact? I know that I'm pretty close just because of how well I kept journals. But everybody, when writing memoir, we aren't writing autobiography. We aren't reporting. I have to say, though, that I did research the things that I remembered. For instance, the Crosby, Stills, and Nash concert at the San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant in 1983. I had to ask myself, did I really remember that uh, David Crosby was arrested on the way for possession of cocaine and couldn't show up to the concert? I looked it up and the only place I could find it is in some really obscure UK newspaper. But in fact, I found the concert and I found the incident. So, um, you know, that and a couple other mentions that I have of of actual events that were happening in the world at the time, I did chase them down, look them up, verify them. That was before I decided whether or not to just strike memoir from the cover. But um, for the most part, I, I did chase it down. I think the, the, the truths that I don't tell are a couple things. Um, there are people who, whose behavior I, t- I really tamed. I tuned down. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't as truthful. I think when the first time I wrote it, I was. I just blatantly said, here's what happened. And I left a couple artifacts after saying, you know, this person might read this someday. And do I want them to feel this way? about my perspective. Do they want, do I want them to even know that I felt that way? And um, the director of the UAA MFA, uh, Dr. David Stevenson, he's a, a naturalist author. Um, he said, what's this little artifact you wrote over here? It doesn't sound like you and your sister had any big reason to want to run away or anything. And I thought, oh, I know I, I went back and I tamed this, but I didn't it didn't take every little thing out. And so I went back and, and I had to scrub it to make sure that the changes that I made were universal throughout the book.
0: Wow. Yes. Uh, that's the value of an editor, isn't it? And yes, it is. Do you actually have any fallout from the people that were in your life then for this novel? Because Not, off- Not yet. Not <laughs> yet. It's pretty new. It's pretty that's new. Pretty tell, new. Us, tell us
1: the whole name of it. It's called Narrow Girls on a Blue Profound Stage. Now, this novel used to be called The Seamstress. It was called The Seamstress for many years. I knew that I was going to write this book when I was 16 years old. I started writing it at 16. I called it The Seamstress. I have the long fountain pen handwritten pages, some of which I used verbatim in the book. Um, I think that at at some point, also uh, a Dr. Stevenson's suggestion, Um, He said, you know, the book's not about the seamstress. The book is about you. And so I went through a couple other title changes. Um, At one point, it was called Always in August. And uh, then we realized there was a 1980s drugstore novel called that. And and so I was talking to the publisher one day and I said, you know, I wrote an essay once called Narrow Girls on a Blue Profound Stage, which is a conglomeration of sentences from um, an 1800s George Dillon poem about ballet dancers. And this poem is written out completely in the back of the book, but it's two lines kind of um, flipped. And I thought it was a very intriguing vibe from this poem from the 1800s. He was um, Edna St. Vincent Millay's lover. If you don't know who George Dillon is, Um, he's kind of a little more obscure than she is, but that was this strange random poem about ballet. And I had written this essay and I threw it to the, the, uh, publisher thinking, well, let's just discuss discuss it. And she goes, "No, that's it. Story titles are all the rage." So that's what we Interesting. went.
0: Interesting. Oh my gosh. Sorry for that. You know tangent. what? <laughs> we are actually very close to out of time. I'm so sorry. I I'm sorry too because I'd just love to keep talking. Uh, We can find your writing and your opinions and your wisdom in all different journals and, and your essays and your stories, as well as your books. Do you want to give us some direction on how we can do that? And if you have any social media handles too.
1: Sure. Um, You know, there's um, an article I wrote on medium um, under the literary literally literary publication. um, And it is called truth in memoir. I believe Oh, lovely. We'll put that in the show
0: notes and okay. link to it on the Nonfiction Authors Association. And then
1: also on Brevity blog, um, I have an essay on the process of writing this book and it's called, you know, that book I'm writing, you're in it. And so <laughs> what we love- didn't get to cover was how you talk to the people in your pages. And that, uh, that article completely covers what I did and the process that I went through and talking to the people. So, um, Carla, if you end up putting up some links. I'll give you that link. I think I put it in the top of your document.
0: Oh, good. Okay. I'll definitely will put those links in along with the transcript and the names of all the books that you mentioned. Thank okay. you for all of those examples. <laughs> and um, thank you so, so very much for for being on the podcast and inspiring us as memoirists to, uh, to write Write the truth and you can turn it into fiction if you want.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has. Um, I love talking shop.
0: Me too. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. And thank you, everybody. And uh, please go to the Nonfiction Authors nonfictionauthorsassociation.com website to get the transcript, the show notes, all kinds of uh, uh freebies when you sign up for our email list. And we'll see you next time. We do this every single week. So please subscribe.